How does someone with multiple traumas in their life let go of the past? In today's story, a man dealt a bad hand many times over is learning how to win. Stay tuned. Welcome to Stories of Hope. I'm Christine Hotchkiss. Each week I bring you stories that inspire, educate, and give you hope. I want to thank my sponsor and podcast producer, The Motivated Mind Group. Most people will experience some form of trauma at some point in their life. Talking about what happened can help you move on, but society inhibits expression, particularly for men. My guest today is Cary Grant, whose long list of lifetime traumas has not stopped him from staying positive and helping others. Carrie, we finally meet. How are you? I'm, I am blessed and I appreciate your patience. You kind of have to, right? Because it's in divine timing as I see it. But I'm really glad I finally get to see your face. I've talked to you several times on the phone. So here we are. You have had quite the journey and society looks at men thinking you don't have to be weak. You have to be strong. You have to provide. You have to do all these wonderful things. And inside, you guys are also hurting on so many different levels. And you have a few, to say the least, of some trials and tribulations. You've had substance abuse. You have been given up three or four times. You've had your name changed four or five times. And there's abandonment. And the list goes on. So we're going to talk about this today because we don't get to talk about a man's point of view in their journey so that you can be the man that you need to be for your family and for society and for your dreams. Because I know you got some that are going on right now. Yes, ma'am. Let's start with how you made lemonade out of lemons with just establishing who you are. You went through many different family members not wanting you. Tell me how that felt and, and where did you actually understand that this was not normal? When I was young, I don't know that I knew that anything was abnormal, if you will. It just what it's what was going on. I think it's when I was getting older that I started to understand, oh, oh wow, um, I had too much energy for for you know, or my parents were getting divorced, so they had to, and my grandmother I don't think I really got that as a kid. I at, at all. I don't. I don't think. Okay, so usually we only know what we know until something else has either been presented or someone else oh, shows wow. us something different. Is oh, what wow. I'm understanding. Mm -hmm. So, as a child, you went through many different homes, and it wasn't foster care necessarily. It was actually within your own family. Please share more about how that how you got through that because as a child the stability in our life is generally supposed to be our home but yours was not stable no it wasn't um at three my mother and father gave us up for adoption and my grandparents adopted us so that's you know name change number one i got a real good understanding of how much energy I had. My grandmother really didn't know how to work with that much energy, um, like getting me into soccer where I could burn it up. Her idea was to stick me in the corner of the TV room and don't move. Okay, well, I already have a lot of energy and wonder why I act out in school. So I'm now having a seven-year-old, I really understand the value of, say, soccer. 
because he's he's like a little mini me. Um, and then at ten, my I found out much later, but my grandmother actually told my real mother, "You can adopt Carrie back, or I'm gonna put him up for foster care because she wasn't able to handle me." Oh my god! Now gosh. my sister was doing great. She uh, she was being very nurtured. She was also very calm and not me. Um, and so she stayed with my grandparents all the way through, you know, college. She's still married to the first man, the whole thing, like all the white picket fences and all, all the, all of that part. So my mother and her husband at, at the time framed it as we really want a child. Would you like to come live with us? Well, for as much as I was being savagely beaten by my grandmother, um, it sounded like a good option to me so so <clears throat> it was a good thing uh that my my mother uh got me and so the honeymoon ensued well that's odd wording the newness of them having a child and me having new parents and they kept me back from fifth grade i was almost done with it but i wasn't making really good grades i was being picked on a lot i was very strange young boy um malnourished um not malnourished because they didn't feed me but because i my my energy burned it up i think and so there's a lot of quirkiness with me so they held me back right and i wasn't reading that well and that gave an extra long summer with my mom and us to kind of figure all that out and then i got to see how far the apple fell from the tree and it wasn't that far mm. my, my mother was a, a far more violent verbally and physically than my grandmother could have ever been I'm thankful for my grandmother because I didn't wind up in actual foster care. So you, I, as much as you hear whatever, unbelievably thankful. Um, so just, you know, to keep it brief and brilliant, some of the things that I experienced with my mother, other than savage beatings, and I, like, I have scars up my back um, and on my, my patuckus. You know, some of the things was, you know, putting me out front of the house and telling me that the cops were on their way to get me with my little suitcases because <clears throat> I was a bad boy. And then every so often she'd come out and, okay, they're on their way. You know, they had another call. They're on, they're on their way. And she, in my mind for like an hour, she would do this. And then she, can you be a good boy? And she'd let me in kind of thing. There was, there was a lot of damage. I remember towards the end of me being adopted by my mother, I was peeing in my closet because I was scared to leave my room. And, and the odd part about it was the bathroom was literally on the other side of the wall to a degree. Uh, she put pushed me through a, a, a sliding glass door one time. Her idea of getting me to do what she wanted me to do was, and, I, and I'm talking about like, say, 13, 14 years old. Um, she would pour cat litter on me in the middle of the night with full of poop and pee because I forgot to clean the cat litter. She would do the same thing with the trash. She would do the same thing with water because my job was to do the uh, ice trays. Um, now, you got to hear me. What's going on for me that that happened more than once? What kind of attention? Any kind? Any? Yeah. At all? Uh, that one still kind of haunts me a bit uh, today. What, what what was going on for me that that any one of those needed to happen more than once? So, Carrie, when you talk about the things that were from the past, very traumatic, very heavy, 
very hurtful. You and I on a previous call had talked about some addictions. An addiction Mm -hmm. is an escape, right? It's a numbing thing. What are some of the addictions that, we'll start with one. What was one of the biggest addictions that you had that probably was the most painful for you and the people around you because I don't think real people realize when they do an addiction or excuse me when they have an addiction that it actually hurts everyone else around them it's just you and you only thing and this is going to take care of everything what was that addiction well I think if I had people around me at the time that care that might be true but they didn't so um speed Speed. five years what got you involved in that on well, when I moved out to Vegas, because I thought I met my dad, he was uh, he was doing it and I didn't know. And he kind of kept it from me, if you will. And then the same people he was doing it with kind of circled back around his back and kind of got me into it. And then I think they kind of made it look like I got him back on it, which is wasn't true. He was on it. So speed. Mm-hmm. People don't like to talk about addiction. What did really? this do for you? No, it's a shame factor. People say, I'm a recovering addict, then everyone's happy for them. But no one wants to talk about the darkness. And if they do, we don't hear much. I don't hear much about it. Tell me more about the darkness of the addiction that you said, this isn't for me anymore. What's the turning? Uh, Oddly, uh, it was the same class. (laughs) Except it was the third class in. And I don't. I'm unwilling to say that I chose it. It was an accident and I was in the middle of nowhere and couldn't do anything about it. But the addiction was bad. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't eating for days on end. And if it was, it was a saltine cracker and that felt like a Las Vegas buffet. It was my being rail thin. It was, you know, to your point with affecting other people, I looked like a skeleton and my, you know, my sister calling and checking on me and, I love you. And she knew I was an, an, uh, an addict, if you will. Right. It was the, you know, tying things on top of a car to go sell it at the swap meet in the middle of the night. And it was more stuff than that should have been on top of a car. Like every bad meme that you've ever seen was stuff roped off on the top of the car. It was that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was sleeping in someone else's car, not even my own. Elaborate on that. I slept in a girlfriend of mine's car for almost a year, uh, carrying a loaded gun, selling speed. And uh, she let me shelter down in her car. You slept in someone else's car for a year and you were selling drugs mm-hmm. out of the car. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, not out of the car. Well, I did sell it out of the car, but not so much like that was. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. To make my money for the addiction. And it didn't matter what it took or who you were taking down with you for this addiction? Like I never broke into homes to get money for it. It always just seemed to appear, um, the money or the drugs, I guess, right? But I never, you know, never held anybody up gunpoint or anything like that. But I mean, I could tell you this, I remember dropping some on the carpet and we started snorting the carpet because we were so desperate to get what we could because of the addiction. And then once we snorted what we could of it, we stood in it and let our sweaty feet absorb what we could. Wow. I was. uh, I I have to stop for a second because I'm having a trigger moment right now. My ex-husband did did this and Mm. destroyed so much of my life. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. I can see why you're focusing on what damage did it do to people around me. I hear, I hear that. And in at that time, in those five years, the only human being that gave a flying hoot about me was my sister. And it was always, I love you. I'm praying for you. I love you. How are you? Not, I didn't feel like a lot of judgment, you know, kind of thing. That was it. Other than that, it was all a bunch of, you know, we, uh, junkies. addiction, it, it oh, hurts people. I'm, I'm sharing that right now. Um, I thought that I gave love to someone so they could get out of whatever they felt they were in, but there was no way I was going to understand me being mm -hmm. on the other side, as you can see, was hurting and tearing my family apart in so many mm -hmm. ways that yes, there were those things that were tied on the top of a car, dumpster diving. Mm -hmm. finding things that you could that had no value that you thought had value to go sell. Mm -hmm. Someone that was plugged into a, um, an outlet that slept in a tent in the back of my house in the mm -hmm. yard. These are the, um, the, the things that people don't talk about, that the real part of what is addiction. It's not just you as the one that's doing the, the substance or whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, um, porn. It's, there's another side to it. I myself stand or sit here and say, I'm the other side of it. You just mentioned your sister, the other side of it. And in mm -hmm. a, few, you know, a few minutes ago, you said no one else cared. Wrong. That was where your addiction controlled how you felt. You thought that no one cared. I was a person in my life that had someone with the same addiction that said, I do care. So it does, it does matter. And I'm so glad that you said that. And normally I get other people to cry and you got me to cry. <laughs> so, um, because it is a topic that, that is hurtful. <laughs> Moving forward, you got past that. And there was obviously a light somewhere. But before we find that light, you had mentioned that you had met a man that was thought to be your dad. How did that come about that you didn't know it was your dad, but then you thought he was and then you found out he wasn't? You're gonna love. You're gonna love this, right? Okay. And I'll, I will be brief and brilliant. Ready? Okay. Let's go. go. So the dude that when my mom was married to when they gave us up at three was the father of my sister, right? That was dad. So what I didn't know is he was going to prison for uh, selling cocaine. So he was in prison for 14, 15 years. So when he got out, he wrote a letter my to my mother for my sister and I, and then my mother sent him out to us. So he lived in Las Vegas. So when things went wrong for me in Texas, I went out to Vegas, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so what's true is, is that after he passed away about a year ago, I finally, which I don't know why I didn't do it before, but I got one of those family blood, let's check it all out situation. Right. And he, and he did, he had one too. And uh, he, he wasn't my father, but the, the thing that was, was so I had so much respect for him because my mother, when he, excuse me, when he was in Okinawa serving the country, she did what she did, got pregnant. He's not there to cure pregnant. So it was kind of obvious, but he's like, okay. I'll take him as my own kind of situation. Does that make sense? It does. So I got respect. I got respect for the dude, but there's yet another name and yet another father. I hear a lot of confusion. A lot. <laughs> I wonder of why I have multiple personalities, if you will, or why I'm able to switch so quickly. I feel that um, you didn't have a place that you could actually say, this is me, yeah. this, this is who I am. And I think that some people would call it an identity crisis. Sure. 
But there's some truth into it, especially when you were raised in a setting, multiple settings, where you weren't sure who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. You were just doing what you thought you could do. That led you into addiction. That led you into another path of other things that were not so healthy. Or how easy it was to quit. I didn't didn't have very long to figure me out until there was another situation where I could just reinvent myself Mm -hmm. versus what's going on for me Mm -hmm. over a longer period of time. Oh, I get to change. Oh, I get to change. Oh, I get to change. Tell me more. Where was the turning point or what was the turning point that you said, I have to quit this. I have to quit the addiction. I have to quit this lifestyle. I have to quit whatever you felt that said, this isn't what I want in my life. What was the turning point? I, I, okay. It was an accident. Now, now, now past that because of the, your side, my side, there's other people involved. Oh, you're right. My sister. So I had to make a choice to continue to stay clean, but I was at a seminar and I was putting the speed and toilet paper in the bathroom and swallowing it so that I wouldn't, Hey, what do you think we're going to learn today? Right. Wow. Addiction. So in the toilet down throat. So I went in there to dose and I accidentally spilled everything in the toilet. I'm in the middle of nowhere for a week. And there went your drugs. And now you had to face the reality of life and yourself. That's right. One of the hardest things that all of us have. Felt like I was dipped in mayonnaise for three days. I threw up for three days. I hallucinated. I did all the DTs. It was horrific it was horrific and i could not have been in a better place to go through that journey i believe that god had a plan for me and the only way he could get me to pay attention was to show me some seminar so that i could get to what he still has me breathing for for pete's sake because i'm the only one that's going to be able to do that my way if that makes any sense through him or through me Mm -hmm. i he he, trusts me i'm i'm breathing for a reason Right. And so that was it. I wasn't paying attention. So how do you get this idiot to pay attention? I'll show him a seminar. And I literally to this day, it's the way I say it. So you've been on this journey of a lot of healing, Mm -hmm. self-help, and you have a family of your own. I do. Yes, I do. I have a, I have a, in a, in in a week, my son will be seven. I'm coming up on 10 years uh, with my wife, Patience. My son's name is Gage because he's my Gage. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. Is there any time that you are ever challenged um, as a male with society saying, this is the way you're supposed to be, and you look back at where you used to be because now you have a son. Now you're a role model. You're a leader. You are always going to be watched by your son. Oh, yeah, yeah, He emulates me so much. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I do, but I don't know that it's from, like, maybe what standard is. I get a lot of blowback for being too feminine. I, I get I get blowback for being too s- sweet, or, or I communicate more than any other man that I know. I communicate more than my freaking wife. I'm very open and intimate and vulnerable and put everything out there and tell the truth and it's going to be what it's going to be. If I'm, and I'm going to tell the truth because I was a piece of crap. I don't have to be a piece of crap anymore. So, so I get more blowback on not being like a manly man. Now I'm all tatted and I do like to cuss a lot and I've got this bravado, but a lot of this bravado came from no one's going to hurt me again. 
So see the tattoos, you see the gruff attitude, take a step back because I'm not getting abandoned. And then I did years of of being approachable training because I was capsizing what I could get done on this planet because I had abandonment issues. Yeah. So I like it. I get more blowback for being too sensitive or crying too much, like especially when I'm staffing a men's leadership seminar and my come from isn't, you know, beat my chest man stuff. I, I believe in that. I believe that there's a value in it, but I believe that most of what's going on in our society is because of that training. We go and we ride fences because we don't think we can be intimate with anybody because then they make fun of us and we can't cry. But grown men don't cry. Suck it down. You got a job to do. Suck your emotions down. That whole bit of business. And I'm anti that. I 100% agree with you. I have a son and my son is the man Mm. for the role models that weren't that in my life. And it wasn't about being sensitive. It was about the ego that you just talked about, about I have this mask and the mask doesn't have to be the physical as we've learned. And the mask doesn't have to be I look a certain way. You just pointed pointed out some male things like I got tattoos, but I cry. Awesome. You're a human being. And this is the right. things I want to talk about because society doesn't think that men have this sensitive side. And if they do, oh, you're a wimp. No, you don't know where you came from. You talked about abandonment. Hmm. I think a lot of us have that somewhere in our lives. I know I have, and I've had to work through my own. Tell me from your point of view, as a male, what does abandonment mean to you? Well, I mean, I'm just, uh, everything comes back to Mm -hmm. self-worth. You know, I'm not worth loving. I'm not worth putting in an extra class to learn how to read. I'm not worth being noticed or letting me ramble as fast as I was or cherishing me for who I was, right? But we are all worth it. But unfortunately, like you just mentioned, I mean, I, a lot I've of other people are families. It's hard for me to not have an abandonment issue. Would I mean, you... get, let's get real. I've had four dads. If you, if you, four different first names, three different last names. Uh, luckily, I'm, I'm blessed with such a crazy name, Carrie Grant. And I'm, I'm not Carrie Grant. I'm me. I've gotten a, the, the privilege of kind of saying that over and over and over and making it an I am. I'm not that Carrie Grant. I'm the other Carrie Grant. What advice can you give any male that will hear or see this interview that would be affected by one, if not all of the things that you just talked about? Lean into being intimate, meaning into me you see. So much of what happens to men is it's Friday and it's the one beer and it's Bob. And how was your week, Bob? Good. Can I buy you a beer? Great. How about those Broncos? And then we do the honeydews as if, and then we go back to working away on Monday. It's the not pulling over for directions because we know where we're going before MapQuest because we feel like we're wrong for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would suggest practicing with other men, find men that you can be a part of, whether it's a church group or and if you're getting slammed by a certain dude, cool. Don't be intimate with that cat. Don't start making up. Well, all men are. No, no, no. Just pick a different one. Just pick, a, pick, pick another dude. Find a different dude. Get into, it could be therapy. It could be practice with women. Uh, excuse me, practice with men uh, first and build that community of being with men, having a culture of men that are downrange for being vulnerable and intimate. And dude, my wife's driving me nuts. I love her to death, but she's driving me nuts. Can we talk? Absolutely. Talk it through and not make the guy wrong. Yeah, women are crazy, but you know, you love her. You know what I mean? And have that give and go that men can have if they can find men that are willing to do it. 
What would you say to a man about ego? Oh, man, edging God out is horrible. Um, I believe that it stomps out authenticity so much and that there's so much more that will come in as a result of, of being authentic. I'm scared and I'm going to do something versus hiding the fear. I'll, I'll handle it. Uh, I, I'm I am petrified and, I, and I'm going to handle it. How much more attractive that is. The, that what's being hidden is is killing us from the inside for one and women can sniff it out usually a mile of freaking way and when an intimate space is created into me you see when a vulnerable place vulnerable place is created it usually allows the people around us to step into it as well because then they're not guarded from a place of well i better not show emotion because all men don't cry oh you're a dude that cries okay cool me too find your tribe trust me there are men out there that's played by it might not be normal however it is natural what we've been taught as normal for men is horrific it's not natural i want to be natural i want to cry and i want to if i need to if i need to cry and kick somebody's ass but if i need to <laughs> it's what i call the savage servants i'm tired of being a savage I've been a savage my entire life and you can freaking find out real quick that I'm still a savage. My want is to keep my sword sheathed and play with my queen and be inside the moat and play with the children and plant the plants and hoe the, the dirt and work on the, the, the toilet system and make it better and stay inside the walls. But you can guarantee if somebody comes knocking, I'm the first and last one on the battlefield because I've got ammunition that I'm storing now because I have more value in being intimate and vulnerable and powerful from that place and being seen for me in that place and being an example of what I'd like to have around me, nourish and being nourished. It's the savage servant i'd rather be in service carrie what's leadership to you we know what society says when they look at a male what is Ooh. leadership to you leadership is setting an example and if people choose to follow it that it's a good one that doesn't mean you have, have to follow like i, right I don't have a need for people to follow me okay you follow yourself that ultimately it's empowering other people What's my job is to contribute. That is leadership, is to contribute. I'm always contributing something. What am I contributing? What am I leaving behind? Leadership is drawing out from other people. What, like say I'm super powerful at something and then I know I'm in a room full of other people that aren't as powerful as it yet. Leadership is stepping back and going, hey, do it. Yeah, hey, good job because their percentage just went up a bit and then they treat their wives better or their husbands better or their children better or their employees better because they had an opportunity to practice leadership from where they're at versus me coming in and taking over which i can do i can muzzle a room real quick and i've learned the value in stepping back to empower other people to go and be powerful the way to change what's going on in front of me is to empower other people not create people following me I love it. Wow, it's so it. dangerous. And I don't I don't really know how guy you should follow. There's times where I don't follow myself, right? Right. I, and, and that's the beauty of it is knowing that sometimes I don't show up like the dad I want to be. And it's okay, man. It's apologize to the seven. Hey, man, dude, I read that was horrible, dude. I'm so sorry. I'll work on it. What's your take on 
vulnerability? I thrive on vulnerability. I don't have to. I don't have to hide anything. If I choose to tell the truth and and, and be honest, it's vulnerable. And yeah, I can get taken advantage of, but it's not any more than I was when I was a kid. I don't have any value in it anymore. Dig it or don't. It's part of why I own my own business. I just I value showing up the way I do, which is vulnerable. And I, you, you don't you don't really want to mess with me and find out. I'm not the guy that attracts that for one. And I create the most brilliant relationships in my life because of it because other people know they can be vulnerable with me i'm not going to preach i'm going to come down around the thing and be with them i'm going to say hey i hear that i'm doing this a little different but same freaking thing like i'm not scared to tell somebody or like i gotta have my superman cape on all the time the best is to keep it off when we've had trauma happen to us we tend to block things out and we don't want to actually go back to it because we don't want to deal with that pain or we don't want to have to try and figure it out. You mentioned mm. that you had blocked out some of your childhood. Let's go with all. Okay. I so Yeah, I literally, so I did, I, last year I, I stepped into therapy and I've, I've been in therapy before. I stepped into a different kind called EDMR. And so it's like electrical pulses and it gets the trauma that floats around before it settles down in the cortex in the front before you're eight years old and it just floats around so it shows up as forever like if, if a bomb goes off in war it, it, it well until that gets settled down and put into a category it's always going to float around it's always going to create trauma they use it a lot for um military so i stepped into emdmr and what i learned because i went through my entire childhood to, to figure out the abandonment issues the beating issues this that and the other as an example, like my wife would, hey, don't talk, you know, I would say, don't talk to me like that. She's like, babe, I didn't even say it to you like that. What are you talking about? And she was right. She never said it. It never got to me. It got to my trauma. It got to the abandoned boy. Mm -hmm. So through this series of therapy sessions that I, I sat through, I realized I literally severed my child because it was so painful and I wasn't being playful with my son. I wasn't being playful in my life. Yeah, because I literally trained myself to be a supercomputer with no emotions. I was always trying to fix you. I was always trying to preach. I was always trying to blah, 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 because all of that was too painful to look at. That's where people say they're not emotionally available because they have cut that off they don't want to deal with that yes. pain when in fact they actually need to revisit it and they need to understand why they're not emotionally available for whatever relations intimately or professionally you have got to be connected with who you are so you can show up as your best version would you Agreed. agree i absolutely agree I, I did a public apology when i got out of the therapy because i used to tell people for almost 20 years who cares where it came from? Let it go. Right. If you can see what you want, quit trying to figure out where it came from and go, go get your thing. Everything you want is through the windshield. Quit looking in the rear view mirror. What I realized is I was making it right for me to do that. Right. Why would I suggest it to anyone else? If you figure it out along the way, cool, figure it out along the way. But who actually cares? If you can see something, you can have it. And that's the way I did it. And I screwed people for 20 years to not go back and take a look, to then move forward. It's been paramount for me, that therapy I sat through, 
paramount for where I am in the last year mm-hmm. and, and and where I see how I'm operating differently like that. We have to stop blaming the people that put that pain in our lives and start taking accountability and say, no, like you said, this is what I want, not where it came from. This is what I want. I can't make mom happy. I can't make dad happy. I can't make aunt and grandma, whoever. You've got to be happy mm-hmm. in the end. You have to be the one that makes the decision of what you want. So thank you, Cary Grant, this Cary Grant, not the other one, for being yes, vulnerable, being open, being honest, making me cry. And so I appreciate you. Thank you for being my guest today. This inspiring story was brought to you by MMG, your global creative agency based right here in downtown Chandler. Mm-hmm.